Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Rob Armstrong, our US finance editor, David Crow, our banking editor, and Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. Our guest this week is Brandon Daniels from Exeger, the money laundering and financial crime specialists. This week, we'll be taking a look at what Citigroup's results on Monday tell us about US bank earnings season. A look at Standard Chartered as its chief executive, Bill Winters, lashes out at investors over executive pay. And finally, that interview with Exeger and what Caroline thinks of the comments about the outlook for money laundering. First, though, to the US bank earnings season. It's that time of the year again, Q2 results. And Rob, you've been taking a look at what the Citigroup results on Monday tell us about what to expect for the rest of the week's earnings. Quite a mixed set of results, it's fair to say, I think. Yes. Well, let's start with what we knew going in. All the big diversified U.S. banks told us that their capital markets businesses were going to be weak. So that means investment banking, advising on M&A, debt underwriting, equity underwriting. And that means the markets businesses, so trading in debt and equities and so forth. And as promised, Citi provided a weak set of results. So we expect more of the same from J.P. Morgan, who reports today, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, and right on down the line. So the question is, how does each bank make up for the fact that the capital market businesses are weak? How Citibank did it was controlling costs, returning capital, and most surprisingly, posting a good result from its long-troubled retail bank. So that is growing again after a stagnant 2018 and, frankly, years of problems. So a mixed but I would say slightly better than expected result from Citigroup. Talk to us a little bit about that kind of core retail bounce back, because underlying that, there was, I think, some pressure on the margin, wasn't there? Well, in basic banking activity, lending, there is pressure because rates are falling and the yield curve is quite flat. What that means is, The yield on your loan portfolio comes down a little bit. The Fed is talking about cutting rates. Short-term rates are falling. Loans automatically adjust, so you make less interest on the loans. But deposits are slower to adjust because people don't move their deposits as quickly, et cetera, et cetera. The result is that at Citibank, we saw yields get less interest and deposit costs go up both by just a little bit. But even that small closing of those jaws, the compressing of that margin, was enough to get analysts chattering about, what does this mean for banking, that lending margins are now actually getting tighter? And if it's true of City, it's likely to be true across the board, I yes, suppose. Yes, I, I, it's, it's really a market effect. And in fact, it's, if it's true of City, it's probably more true of others, because City is the least dependent 
on lending margin of all the big banks. So what the analysts were saying was, wow, if this is true at Citi, what does that mean for Bank of America, JP Morgan, which actually are much more dependent on lending? Well, we'll keep a close eye on that and we'll probably come back to you in a week's time, Rob, for a review. Thank you very much for that. Let's move on to our second story of the day and a look at Standard Chartered. Bill Winters, the chief executive, gave you an interview, David, in which he lashed out at some investors over their protests at his pay package and specifically his pension. This has caused a bit of a Twitter storm on Tuesday morning. Tell us a bit more. So, as you say, I sat down for an interview with Mr. Winters a little while ago, and he's very angry about how this situation has developed, I think it's fair to say. It helps, I think, to go back and understand what Standard Chartered has done. Basically, they changed the methodology they use to calculate Mr. Winters' pension. And what that, in effect, did is it made it look as though he was receiving a pension cash allowance equivalent to about 20% of his total salary. And previously, he'd got 40%. So anybody looking at that would have assumed that it had gone down. In fact, it had stayed the same. And all that had changed was the calculation that Standard Chartered did. And it was this more than anything else, I think, that angered shareholders who registered a significant protest vote at the AGM this year. And he feels that they were given an opportunity to make their displeasure known in the bank's consultation. And that rather than doing that, although they raised some issues, he said nowhere near the level of anger that ended up coming subsequently, that they then went and briefed newspapers such as ourselves, and that this is not the way that they should be dispatching themselves. So this was his sort of return salvo after that protest vote. Yeah, and he's branded those shareholders immature. This kind of lashing out at your own investors is rarely the kind of thing that ends well, though, is it? It's not. And I think it depends how you look at the shareholder base. Sometimes people inside the company will say, these are the usual suspects. These are the UK-based institutions that hold a big chunk of Standard Chartered's shares. Other investors, Tomasek, which is Standard Chartered's largest investor, And some of the US value funds that hold Standard Chartered are much more relaxed about executive pay. They don't sort of see Mr. Winters' pay packet as particularly egregious. And so as long as he manages to keep on side the biggest shareholder and the US value funds, he can kind of afford to, or so it seems so far, afford to be a bit more punchy when it comes to the UK institutions. I think now everyone's waiting with bated breath to see if Standard Chartered does actually end up doing something about this issue, because as one investor told us when we were reporting this story, they will just continue to vote against the company's remuneration policy every year. And indeed, that 40% could end up becoming closer to 50%, after which it's a big problem for the bank. And of course, Standard Chartered isn't alone in having been targeted over this. It's just that other banks have, in the case of HSBC, for example, totally reformed their pension arrangements. We should say this goes far beyond the banks. Many other companies have relented and changed their structures as well. So yes, we will see how this row heats up over the coming months. Thanks very much, David. So let's move on to our final topic and a look at the whole area of money laundering and bad behaviour by banks, I suppose. 
first of all, we'd like to play you an interview that I conducted recently with Brandon Daniels of Exegere. Now, this is a company that specialises in being appointed to check up on banks and the way they behave after regulatory intervention and also act as consultants to companies that want to improve their processes. Here's what Mr Daniels had to say. It's a fascinating time to be operating in your space, given all of the hand-wringing over money laundering in the world, but particularly in Europe, as regulators struggle to get to grips with this issue. I thought maybe we should start by you giving us your thoughts on why this is such a hot topic at the moment and why regulators are struggling to get a grip on things. I think the source of today's focus on money laundering and sanctions really comes from the urgent need for the law enforcement community to arrest illicit money flows. I think the often quoted statistic is that something like 1% of illicit funds in the regulated financial market is actually found given today's anti-money laundering controls. And I would say just being in this space for a long time, that rings true to me. The complexity of the schemes that have arisen in Europe over the last five to 10 years has created both a lot of pressure on the law enforcement side and the financial institution side to ramp up their sophistication. I mean, if you look at things like cryptocurrencies, mirror trades in more opaque derivatives markets, even things that are more physical in nature, like fuel smuggling, the identification of that behavior is very difficult. It's hard to find in your group of transactions and things like shell company arrangements make it even harder to find. And so I think with both the known issue of very little financial crime being stopped and the sophistication of financial crime operators getting more advanced, you see a lot of regulators and a lot of politicians saber-rattling because they know we're falling so far behind the criminals. Now, your firm Exeger came onto the radar, certainly in the UK in a big way, when you were appointed as the so-called monitor at HSBC after its sanction breaches and penalties were imposed by the US authorities. You were there for a number of years, basically checking that HSBC was doing what it was supposed to do and arguably helping them improve their systems as well. What did you learn from that exercise and what other systems improvements? You talk about, you know, companies having to do a better job of catching criminals. What other systems improvements are imaginable? Yeah, no, absolutely. We've been employed by the world's major regulators to oversee bank activities from the FCA to the Department of Justice to the Federal Reserve Board to HKMA, right? We've been employed to oversee the transformation of systems and processes that are in the existing financial crime compliance market. But we've also been brought in by institutions to help them to proactively transform those same legacy systems and processes. And I think the major pivot point that we're seeing is that 
an initiative to transform the way that people completed financial crime compliance from a cost perspective has now taken on a completely new life because there's a recognition that for all of the money that is spent in financial crime compliance, and it registers in the tens of billions across the top banks, right? For all the money that is spent in financial crime compliance, there's very little that's actually rendered from most of the activities of the banks involved. And that is largely due to very heavily manual processes and inherent operational risk that is born out of hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands of people making individual decisions about whether or not a transaction or a customer or a counterparty has financial crime risk associated to them. So far more could be done on an automated basis. Is that your basic thesis? Well, it's both more can be done on an automated basis and you need to relook at the process of actually identifying financial crime risk. Regulators are very focused on this. Where does that leave the issue of fines, penalties for misdemeanors? We've obviously had several years of very high levels of fines across the market. Have we reached the period of peak fine? Are things going to decline from here? So if I could fortune tell whether or not fines will go down, I'd probably be playing the lottery right now. But I think the fact is the institutions, so private and public sector, have gathered together, have coalesced their views on the deployment of technology and the re-engineering of process to create better and more effective systems for finding financial crime risk. And you're also seeing some of the progressive jurisdictions and regulators that are banding together the private and the public sector to come up with things like KYC utilities or monitoring capabilities in certain customer groups or high-risk areas. You see a lot more collaboration between the private and public sector than ever before around this area of financial crime risk. And I think what that is going to lead to is a recognition that there is an onus on both sides of this commission to get better at identifying the illicit funds and arresting or halting them into the regulated financial market, which I believe will create a better exploration environment. I think more banks, more institutions, more of the alternative payment providers are going to be more willing to explore ways in which they can employ technology or artificial intelligence in exciting or interesting ways. I think it'll lead the institutions to a more transparent place with the regulators. And I do believe the banks that are putting in place some of these more advanced and more progressive models for identifying financial crime risk will also see more leniency in the cases where they are filing voluntary self-disclosures or SARS for significant activity. We've already seen that in a couple of cases that have come out in the last six months. Well, Brandon, Daniel, thanks for your thoughts on all of that. And thanks for gazing into your crystal ball. So let me bring Caroline in on this. Obviously, this is an area that has been growing very rapidly. It's great business for Exeger to be appointed 
either proactively by banks or by regulators to monitor the way in which banks behave in this whole area. What do you see as the outlook? I asked Brandon Daniels whether he thought we'd hit peak fines on this and he kind of dodged the question slightly. But it's obviously been peak business for a company like his. What do you see as the way forward? Yeah, I think any industry that's ridden the wave since the financial crisis of the subsequent what was called conduct crisis has done very well, be that monitors such as Exeter or white collar crime lawyers, any of the above who are advising big banks or individuals on these big investigations has done very well. I'm not sure that money laundering fines, we've seen the last of those. I think money laundering actually is one area that we're seeing quite a lot of activity at the moment. Standard Chartered quite recently was fined for continually failing to put proper systems and controls in place to prevent money laundering and sanctions busting. And that was only April that we saw joint action by the FCA and the DOJ in that area. In the UK, we've certainly seen a big step up by the government in its rhetoric against fighting money laundering. And I think part of that is particularly Russian focused. And we've seen a step up in the rhetoric since the Skripal poisoning. And I think the UK sees taking concerted action against money laundering as useful in hitting specifically Russians where it hurts in their pockets because they can't unilaterally at the moment, while we're part of the EU, make sanctions policy. I think some of what Brandon was saying about private-public coordination, it should be noted that that's not without controversy. And on Friday, the government unveiled its long-awaited economic crime plan And there's the strategic board that has, you know, the obvious people like the Serious Fraud Office and the National Crime Agency, but it also has big banks themselves, including Standard Chartered, HSBC, Barclays, these banks that have been fined for not having tight enough controls against financial crime. And campaigning groups such as Global Witness and Corruption Watch say that this is akin to putting energy companies in charge of climate policy and basically accuse the government of policy capture. Well, I suppose we'll only know for sure if things improve or don't improve over the coming years. And Caroline, Brandon also had some quite interesting thoughts on artificial intelligence and the role that that might play increasingly in the future. Yeah, AI is a really burgeoning area, both for firms and the regulators themselves. The FCA has been using algorithmic systems and AI to spot what it would dub suspicious trades for a while, but also the Bank of England quite recently unveiled that it is also going to be deploying AI and machine-readable technology to make its vast amount of rules. Hugh Van Steenis, who is the senior advisor to Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, said that it's akin to supervisors receiving the whole works of Shakespeare every week to read. So they're going to be deploying machine-readable technology to try and make their masses of rules more digestible. Thanks for that insight. That's all for this week. My thanks to Rob, David and Caroline here and our guest Brandon Daniels from Exeger. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 